Hello everyone, and welcome back to the McGill International Review. Over the past two and a half years, as COVID-19 wreaked havoc on the world as we knew it, there have been many ways that people and institutions alike have tried their best to mitigate the spread of the virus. Naturally, some of these methods have been more productive than others. For example, one way people have tried to contain COVID is by disinfecting objects until the cows come home. The idea is essentially that by utilizing all the Clorox wipes and hand sanitizers in the world, you can make sure that the virus never gains a foothold. But as the science shows, these methods do little to actually curb the spread of the coronavirus. You see, the thing is, COVID-19 mostly spreads through the air. For example, you're a lot more likely to get COVID if you're close to someone who sneezes at you than if you touched a surface that wasn't sanitized recently. So why is there still so much focus on disinfecting things? This obsession with disinfecting things often gives the impression that COVID is being contained when in fact little is being done to reduce infection these ways. This phenomenon of political performance beyond actually containing the spread of the virus, this phenomenon is known as hygiene theater, and it's what we'll be speaking about today. Today I'm speaking with Yasmin Tayag. Yasmin Tayag is a science writer and editor who's written articles for The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The New York Times. In this episode, I've sat down with her to discuss one of her recent pieces on hygiene theater and how society's attitudes towards the pandemic have changed since the start of the pandemic. Hope you enjoy. Yasmin Tayag, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So obviously at the start of the pandemic, there was a, like a huge obsession with disinfectants and trying to like clean objects with the implicit assumption being that the process of disinfection was a helpful and productive way to avoid getting affected. That assumption has sort of lost credibility even beginning of like May of 2020 when the CDC announced that the virus mainly spread through person-to-person interaction. So would you mind walking the audience through the way that like sort of disinfecting objects still has a presence to this day? Sure. Yeah, you know, when the pandemic broke out and we didn't really understand what was going on, I think it was a very natural impulse for people to want to stay clean. You know, after all, from childhood, we're told to wash our hands and, you know, cough into our elbow so that we don't get other people sick. But very um, soon after the pandemic broke out, scientists determined that it was spread mostly through face-to-face contact or you know, face-to-face interactions, mostly through airborne transmission. And so then it kind of stopped making sense to continue wiping down our cereal boxes and our tables, even though it is obviously part of just being clean in general, which is always good. And yet, to this day, you still see 
a lot of signage about the way and how frequently things have been cleaned. For example, on an elevator recently, I saw buttons that said, these buttons are self-cleaning. Or, you know, you see it a lot in airplanes and airports where it's like, this section has been cleaned with Lysol, or this magazine has been treated with a antimicrobial treatment, which, I mean, a lot of these things, I have no idea how they work or whether they work. I'm doubtful. Um, But you still see them a lot more than you would expect of a society that understands that the virus does not spread through surfaces, at least very rarely. And I wrote that article for The Atlantic because I was just curious why it persisted. You know, at this point, I'm not even... um, I don't even know if I can blame anyone. I just feel bad that people are still confused. Yeah. Um, But you also floated the idea that some of this might be like performative because obviously like constantly wiping down tables and cereal boxes, even if that's not actually helpful, that might like give you the impression that it's helpful because it's much more of like a visual aid than simply opening up the window or trying to clean air filters. So how much of this, like how much of the presence of hygiene theater, as Derek Thompson uh, called it, how much of that do you think is just like an attempt to like, like psychologically make yourself think that you're contributing a great deal to reducing infections? I think, you know, I, as I've thought about it, I'm not sure anybody is doing this 100% because they know it isn't a real thing and yet they're still doing it. I think there's a certain level of confusion that's always a little present. So even me, for example, you know, I obviously understand how this virus spreads, but, you know, if somebody gives me some hand sanitizer at the beginning of a meal, I'm not going to be like, no, I'm not going to use that. I'll use it because sure. I'll wash my hands. Why not? Um, so I think I think where it most seems like a performance is in businesses and in restaurants and like, you know, at airports, like I mentioned in my article um, there, I think a lot of the hygiene theater is geared toward making customers feel safe. And so, you know, customers have gotten used to a certain level of cleanliness Um, being advertised by the businesses and institutions that they go to during the pandemic. And so I think if you're a business owner, you're like, well, if I stop doing this now, are my customers going to think we're dirty? You know, if we're a restaurant that has been using UV lights and has been wiping down tables and our customers got used to it, if they stop all of a sudden, it can be kind of nerve wracking because you're worried that if the performance ends, then the customers will notice and think badly of it. And so I think a little bit of that is performance. Um, and and yeah, I, uh, I'm kind of, a, I, I'm hoping to see the, to think the best of everyone. So I, I really, as I said, I don't think anybody is doing this 100% knowing that it's, useless. You know, I think some people think, well, you know, it might help a little bit. So 
doesn't hurt to try. Yeah. It's it's all like even if you know that it's not like the most helpful, there might be like something in the back of your head telling you that like there's it doesn't hurt to try. Right. That's the that's what I think most people have going through their heads. Yeah. But there was one quote from that article that I thought was kind of poignant, so I'm going to quote it right now. Hygiene theater becomes a serious problem, however, when it falsely reassures people that an environment is safe, giving them permission to relax their expectations and behaviors. Would you mind elaborating on this quote? Sure. Um, well, hygiene theater, you know, we think it doesn't have any consequences. You know, if you're just trying to keep clean, what's the harm in that, right? And there's some, you know, kind of immediate ones, like it creates a lot of waste. It um, costs a lot of money to do all of these things. But I think the most nefarious consequence is that, you know, if you walk into a place where it has been treated with UV light and the surfaces have been sanitized. It, I think if you walk into that place and you feel like, okay, well, I guess that means this place is safe so I can remove my mask, um, even if there's a surge and just carry on as if there isn't a pandemic going on, that's when I think it becomes dangerous because it sort of distracts from the methods that we know are actually effective in curtailing the virus. So yeah, I mean, I, I I would characterize the worst parts of hygiene theaters, hygiene theater as distractions from the things that we know work. And that can be dangerous when these places aren't actually safe and, you know, people just sort of let their guard down. Yeah. And I think it also kind of intersects with some of your commentary on the pandemic in general. Like, for example, you recently wrote an article in The Atlantic about basically people in America that haven't gotten infected yet by COVID, which you helpfully titled the concept of COVID virgins. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so what I kind of found interesting is the idea that like, in a way, you there was like a the concept of seeing these people as sitting ducks and there's always a certain cost benefit analysis to like how worried you should be about people who haven't gotten infected yet. Um, and then that sort of, if you were to try to extrapolate that more generally, is there like a certain mood in which like how, how concerned people should be about the pandemic at this late stage in the summer of 2022? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll start by acknowledging that you know, no matter how experienced you are with COVID, whether you're a virgin or you've had it a bunch of times, it's always, always going to be a good idea to try to not get it again. And every epidemiologist I've ever spoken to, you know, they, nobody is going to tell you, oh, it doesn't matter, just get it. You know, there are so many consequences that we still don't know about, which is what always gives me pause. So I'll say I've had COVID once. Um, I got it in November, 2021, before the Omicron wave. And that was scary. And what scared me then was the, 
you know, I was vaccinated and boosted, so I didn't think I was going to have severe illness, but that's always a risk. Um, But what was even scarier for me was this prospect of long COVID, which, you know, as we know, there are all these potential impacts like losing your sense of smell and taste forever or being fatigued for a long time. And, you know, scientists don't really understand it yet, what causes it, who gets it. And that's just not a risk I want to take. And your risk increases every, you know, when you get COVID. So that's a big thing. Um, but that said, I'm I'm tired. Everybody's tired of having to think about this and how to behave all the time. And so, you know, going into this moment so long after the pandemic has begun, I think it's understandable if you're feel, feeling fatalistic, if you're just like, well, all of my friends are getting it. I guess it's only a matter of time if I get it. But I do think it's really important to just try not to do, especially if you are going to be around vulnerable people. So whether that's somebody who is elderly or immunocompromised, like a parent or relative, or even just a friend who's, who's ill, you know, I think these are all reasons to still try not to get it, even though you might be so over it. Yeah. And of course, I think I also sympathize with uh, the people that are tired, given how long this has been going. But then, like you were talking about how there are always people that might like the elderly or the immunocompromised who might still be at risk. So do you think that like it's worth delineating or at least for people in this current phase of the pandemic? Do you think it's worth delineating between like the danger to like the the individual of yourself and the danger that's posed in terms of your interpersonal re- interaction with others? Yeah, I mean only you can know your the risk to yourself and I think it's important for anybody to try to protect themselves. But I think throughout this pandemic, ever since the beginning, the message that epidemiologists really were trying to push that didn't quite sink in was that this isn't just about you. It's about the people who you interact with every day. And so, you know, even if you're going to be fine or just have like an illness that'll last a few days, somebody else could have a very severe illness and die if they come into contact with you. And so this was the rationale behind mask wearing, which unfortunately here in the U.S. at least has become so political. You know, it was like, hey, just wear a mask. It'll help you stay safe, but it'll also help people around you stay safe. And it's a really low cost, personal cost um, to doing it. It's literally just wear the mask. Um, And so, yeah, I think even if your individual risk is for severe illness is low, I think it's helpful. I think it's good to always think about who you might come into contact with, you know, on the subway or at the mall. You can't always guarantee it's going to be somebody who is as healthy as you. You can't always guarantee it's going to be someone who is vaccinated and boosted, unfortunately. And so there are a lot of people who could still have really bad consequences from COVID, even though, you know, I think especially around a lot of young people, the 
the common message around it is like, oh, it's not so bad. Is that true of your friend group? Um, so, okay, this is, this is really hard to explain, um, <laughs> but I'll try my best. Um, so I think there's like a few different aspects to at least like the way that my generation thinks of COVID. Um, I think there is definitely an element of like, oh, this isn't so bad, which for all I know might be entirely true for um, a lot of younger people since they're at less risk of COVID. But I guess the one aspect of that like line of thought that I might be a bit more sympathetic to is where it has to do with school closures. Um, mm -hmm. This like that. Are you familiar with uh, Derek Thompson's article about like the vaxxed and done group? Um, you might have to remind me. There's a okay. lot of articles. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So like as, as much as he focuses on economics right now, I think Derek Thompson's last major piece about COVID was about like the emerging group of people in the US that their mentality is basically to get vaccinated as much as possible and then not significantly worry about the pandemic beyond that point. Um, I think I'm going to like he, he gave like a first person attempt at um, capturing their point of view that I think that I'm I'm going to quote right now, which like I'm going to quote his own like imagined quote about how these people think. Um, yeah, uh, quote, for more than a year, I did everything that public health authorities told me to do. I wore masks. I canceled vacations. I made sacrifices. I got vaccinated. I got boosted. And I'm happy to get boosted again. But this virus doesn't stop. Year over year, the infections don't decrease. Instead, virulence for people like me is decreasing, either because the virus is changing or because of growing a population immunity or both. Americans should stop pointlessly guilting themselves about all these cases. Yeah, so that's one point of view. And he doesn't he doesn't completely endorse it, but he doesn't completely condemn it either. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's my position on this as well. Um, in that, like, the the main at this point, the main danger is not for you. And like, in fact, there are a lot of benefits to sort of being a bit le less lax on this issue, considering some of like the mental health consequences of um closures but then i guess like the main drawback about it is just the risk of getting in contact with someone who is immunocompromised mm -hmm. um do you like do you think there are any holes in that specific take well i i sympathize with it because as i said i'm <laughs> so exhausted yeah. of, of all of this um, and I do agree that, you know, getting vaccinated and boosted is, it is the best thing you can do both for yourself and for other people, right? You know, you're not going to get severe illness or die. And, um, you know, if you do get ill, you won't be as sick. And so you're probably not going to be spreading it as much as a person who is unvaccinated and gets sick. Um, and I can see the frustration for anybody who has done everything right thus far and is still being asked to do all these things. And the situation doesn't appear to be changing because, you know, the virus keeps mutating and new infections keep coming and this and that. I get it. I think the thing to remember is that even though it may seem like 
we haven't moved the needle from, you know, a year ago. It's just like, oh, there's still all these infections. People are still getting sick. I still have to do all these things. I think the thing we should try to remember is that we are in a different, a very different position, and in many ways, a much better one, because even though infections are still happening, the fact that so many people are, because we have vaccines and boosters and second boosters, you know, fewer people are having really bad cases of COVID, fewer people are dying. And even if people do get, um, get sick, we have antivirals like Paxlovid that could help them, you know, beat their infections. So I can see how it's easy to just get mad and just be done with everyone else. But I think it's, you know, important to stick to the vision, just like vaccinate everyone. That's the only way we're going to beat this, this virus um, as a, as a global community and, you know, try not to lose sight of that. I, again, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, this ridiculous optimistic person because I think I'm very aware of how hard it's been to reach those goals. Um, but I think going back to my earlier point about having to think about this virus in terms of communities, in terms of, you know, the whole country, in terms of the whole globe, you have to think about other people and you have to think about stopping it worldwide. Yeah. So what would you think to the idea that like within the context of the US, the best way to deal with a pandemic at this point is to like um, try to do your best to maximize vaccination rates, but don't sweat the smaller stuff? Yeah, I think priority should always be vaccination rates. And, you know, here in the US, there are still so many people who haven't even had their first vaccines. Yeah. Um, but once you are vaccinated and boosted, you know, all of the experts I've spoken to have said, you know, you have a good, you have a great level of protection. You probably don't have to really restrict your movement anymore unless you know, unless you're immunocompromised or live with somebody who's immunocompromised. And, you know, at this point, I think I would like to, to think that we're getting to a place where all of these behaviors that we've been asked to do, like avoid indoor environments or wear a mask when it's crowded. I'd like to think that they're not such a big deal anymore. And they're just a thing that we know how to do. And I see that I see that in some of my own interactions, you know, I'll be with friends at a concert and then all of a sudden a whole bunch of people comes in and it gets three times as crowded. It's become very natural, at least in among the people I know to just say like, well, okay, risks a little higher now, maybe it's time to put on a mask. And they don't think anything of it. And I would love for everybody to get to a place where just doesn't feel like a big deal anymore. It's just, a, you know, something you do, put on a mask or suggest eating outside. Um, I think once we sort of remove this idea that it's such a burden to do all of these things, that it'll be a little easier to move forward. Um, so it's more like 
the best case scenario would be for each individual person to exercise restraint and like their own best judgment as to what the best course of action would be at any given time. Yeah, you know, I think that people who care about COVID and who believe that it's real and are vaccinated, Mm. I think most people know what to do at this point, you know? people are smart they'll figure it out and at this point we've it's been drilled into our heads so much that everybody knows what to do it's just feeling comfortable feeling empowered to do it and not feeling like they're going to look like a narc or anything and just doing what they know will help keep them and people around them safe that was a great answer and Final question. Um, in your <laughs> sure. Twitter bio, you described yourself as chaotic neutral, which is obviously a reference to the Dungeons and Dragons alignment chart. So would you uh-huh. would you mind explaining why you consider yourself to be chaotic neutral? Well, the boring answer is that I took a quiz, but the and it told me I was chaotic neutral, uh, which means that I don't always adhere to laws and (laughs) and um am indifferent about morals um which is not exactly what you want to be hearing about the person giving you advice about covid i realize (laughs) but the more fun the more fun um answer is that i play DD in um, a campaign that's been going on for three years i am a level nine tiefling sorceress named Sabrina, who is chaotic neutral. And she's so much more fun to play than somebody who is, who might be, you know, follows the rules a lot. (laughs) They're a lot more unpredictable. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's the right, it's the right character for these times. Yes. A very, a very necessary reprieve. Um, All right. Yasmin Tayag, thank you so much for coming onto the pod. Thank you. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.